We are continuing a series through the prophecy of Isaiah. And this morning we are in Isaiah 21, 22, and 23. Isaiah 21, 22, and 23. Now as we prepare to enter into God's Word together, I think it appropriate that we pray yet again and ask God's hand upon us. Lord, we ask now that as we open your word, that you would address us by your word. We ask that you would speak to, that you would grab hold of our hearts in ways in which we need, in ways in which we might not be aware. Perhaps some of us walk into this room today um, feeling as if it'd be great if God would handle blank. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that as we sit under it, that you would address us, Lord. And maybe the things that we thought we needed, you will address those, or maybe you will speak to or address something that we were totally blind to. And if that be the case, Lord, we ask your mercy upon us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It was... Either late at night on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 1990, or early in the morning, May 18th, 1990, depending how you look at late at night, early in the morning. It was about, I think about 1 a.m. when two men dressed as Boston police officers walked up to the door of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And as many of you are familiar with the story, they rang the button to buzz themselves or, or to notify museum security that they were there. Security sees that these are apparently Boston police. They open the door, or one security guard opens the door. The the men dressed as policemen walk in and announce that they are in fact not Boston police, but they are there to rob the museum. And for many of you, the rest is history. These robbers got away with Millions, even tens of millions of dollars worth of artwork, including Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Gallery, or of, of Galilee, not Gallery, I'm thinking Museum Gallery, uh, Galilee. And the interesting thing about, the, well, one of the many interesting things about the robbery at the Gardner Museum was that of the tens of millions of dollars of, of artwork that were stolen, and then a $10 million reward that was offered by the museum for the safe return of that artwork, it has not been uncovered yet. But that's not what we're getting at today. Let's rewind ourselves back to that moment when those robbers gained access to the museum. Dressed as police, It gave the appearance at least, and there's some schools of thought that think security guards may have been in on the robbery, but so let's suspend that for another day. But it gave the appearance to these security guards that that which wanted in was safe. That which wanted in to the museum was secure. And that proved to not be the case. I think this is a good illustration of the dangers that we can sometimes face in our own lives. When we consider what we think will make us secure, we can oftentimes be led astray to embrace a false sense of security. 
And embracing that in false sense of security, we not only are, are false in what is right and wrong, but we actually, we actually let go of that which is act totally secure and embrace that which is false. And this is what we see addressed in Isaiah 21, 22, and 23 today. It's continuing this prophecy of Isaiah. And as last week in chapters 13 to 20, we saw the, um, the, the, this prophecy of God's coming judgment upon nations throughout the Old Testament. Well, now it continues this warning of judgment that would come upon nations. But instead of being grounded in historical facts, now Isaiah, God through Isaiah, speaks to a, 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 a mysterious future. And it is a warning to all who would hear against trusting in false securities. So, follow along as I read. From Isaiah chapter 21, just to gain the context of where we are, Isaiah 21, 1 through 10. The first prophecy is against Babylon. And God speaks through his servant Isaiah and says, The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the, in the Negev sweep on, it sweeps from the wilderness. From a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Medea. All the sighing she has caused I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me. Like the pangs of a woman in labor, I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. Pause right here real quick. Look at, come up from the text for a moment. What God is doing is pronouncing a judgment upon Babylon. But then in verses 3 and 4, we hear Isaiah's thoughts as he sees this vision of what God will do. And it entirely, Isaiah is not going to be on the receiving end of it, but seeing the hand of God's judgment upon Babylon, he is undone. So this is Isaiah saying, getting back into the text now in verse 4, My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come the riders. Riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. Very quickly, let me give some context for what we see happening here in Isaiah 21. You have this prophecy about the Babylonians. Isaiah is undone in seeing what will happen. But then he re-enters in verse 5 to describing the state of Babylon. They are entirely unaware. 
Verse 5, they prepare their tables, they spread their rugs, they eat and drink. But Isaiah says, arise, O princes, oil the shield, prepare yourselves. But riders will go out and they will conquer Babylon and they will come back fully in health. Horsemen in pairs, Babylon has fallen. The carved images of our gods have been shattered to the ground. First warning about securities is a warning for all of us against a spirit of self-reliance, of self-sufficiency, of trusting in ourselves, in our capabilities, in my smarts, in my strengths, in my intellect, in my acumen, in my ability to manage finances, in my ability to, to build things out of nothing. Trusting in anything in myself that would take my eyes and my heart away from being set upon God. You see, God is warning not the Babylonians. They are likely never to receive this prophecy. He's warning a spirit of Babylon that could exist within his people. And by virtue of the fact that many of us, all of us in fact, have hearts that are similar, human hearts that are similar to those of his audience in their day, this warning is for us too. In fact, if you, you, that, that name Babylon might ring familiar to you, but if you were to stretch all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, you would be familiar with the account of the Tower of Babel. Where the people of God, in, 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 in their own arrogance and in their own pride and in their own ingenuity, they tried to build a tower literally to heaven. And yet, they were dismayed and they were undone in thinking themselves gods. So God warns His people against a spirit of Babylon, against an attitude that is self-reliant, that is self-sufficient, and has no concern for God or no reliance upon Him. And so the warning for us is a warning against this kind of attitude. And see the word that God says to His people in verse 10, Oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. God, Isaiah speaking to God's people who were this thresh, this winnowed one, who were battered, beaten. They, they, they were under the rule, under the thumb of Babylon. And God says to them, I see you and this is what I announce to you. And yet God is telling his people, it is better to be at the, uh, under the foot of the Babylon who reigns over you than to try to be the Babylon and to... Live by her power and by her might. Now we're going to get into this a little bit in chapter 22 a little further. So I'm not going to go much further on this in, 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 in the danger of people who profess faith in God but live by their own strength. But let's just think of it like this for a moment. If you read on in verses 11 through 17, you hear continuing, continuing warnings of God against other nations, against, you see in verse 11, an oracle concerning Duma. In verse 13, an oracle concerning Arabia. And you see these warnings that, that, that those who, who entrust themselves 
uh, to an entity apart from God, they will find that their time is up, that the sovereign God brings judgment upon them. Now, we pause here and we say, okay, Stephen, what do you mean for today? I don't get this. So let's think of it like, think of it in a, in a nature like this. If we're thinking back on Babylon, and you think of Tower of Babel, like I said, Genesis 11, the people of Israel, they try to build a vast tower. They literally say, we're going to build this thing to the heavens. Nothing can stop us. And so what they have in their hearts is a desire to, to, to build renown for themselves, to find great accomplishment for themselves, to the point that they say in their minds, we are going to get to a point where we don't need God. They don't say it with their mouths, but it is the attitude of their minds. Now, this is something that we find ourselves in, in ways in which we might not anticipate. I imagine maybe that is the case where you are in the boat, where you would say, I don't really feel like I need God. I don't really feel like there is a God even maybe. Or if there is a God, I don't really feel like I have any connection with him or I have any responsibility to him. And maybe that's the boat you're in. But the more likely scenario that all of us find ourselves in is in a constant struggle where we want to be as secure as we can possibly be. And yet we also want to say, well, I trust God and I rely upon him and, and I, uh, I, I believe in him. But sometimes these work in opposition to one another. Here's what I mean. So imagine yourself. This is something that sometimes I dealt with in school where, or in my academic career uh, where I felt like I needed to make a certain amount of grades. I need my grades, my, my accomplishments needed to meet a certain standard in order for me to have um, a, a sense of value, a sense of self-worth. That was, uh, that was, that, that, that could help me to sleep better at night. That could help me to feel as if I measured up to those around me. Maybe for you it was something like grades or is something like grades. Or maybe for you it's something like uh, uh, you have to be viewed in a certain manner by those you work with. Or maybe it's something where you, you feel as if your family, you want your family to, 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 to meet a certain standard. You want your family to have that postcard picture look to it. You want your family to, you want your children, your grandkids, your husband, your wife. You want everything to flow smoothly because otherwise you don't know how you will navigate life if that which you place great importance on, whether it be grades, whether it be family, whether it be work, whatever it is, if that thing is not running well, you don't know what you will make of yourself. That is the spirit of Babylon that God is addressing here. God is saying, I don't need to see the towers to your self-worth that you can build. He's saying, I am here to be the one to which you will cling. And the way in which God is infinitely more valuable to us and the way in which God is infinitely more gracious to us is that when I get the test grade that I did not want... Or when your family member or that one in whom you are trusting in that they will measure up when they don't. Or whenever, the, the, whenever you don't get the promotion at work, but in fact you lose the job at work. Or you, or you are forced to take a pay cut that is uncomfortable. Or you are forced to take a step back. The way in which God speaks to you in that instance is not saying your self-worth is destroyed. But God says, no, you are, your worth is tied up in me. And in the fact that I have created you, I have made you, I have set you apart for myself. Therefore, these external things, they may bring pain, but they will not bring your destruction. For your life and your wholeness is satisfied solely in God. In a very real sense, this is what it means to be a Christian. 
For in Christ, we hope in him and our life is tied up with him to the point where we are doing what we can to, to, to strip ourselves of any self-reliance that would build up our own reputation. But our life is wholly tied to Christ and consumed in him. But the alternative for the people of God is an alternative where the people of God say all the right things about God. And yet their hearts reveal another attitude. And that's what we get into in Isaiah 22. So don't take my word for it, but let's see this in chapter 22. So we've had this warning against the spirit of Babylon. But now for chapter 22, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you look at verse 22, verse 1? And following the oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up all of you to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. So the people are celebrating. Okay. Your slain though are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All of your leaders have fled together without the bow. They were captured. All of you who were found captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and of trampling and of confusion in the valley of vision. Skip down to the end of verse 8 and following. God diagnoses the hearts of his people and why they have fallen apart here. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. So here's what's happening. This valley of vision, it's an ironic name that God is uh, uh, giving because it's, it's, it's literally describing Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was built on a hill. So it wasn't a valley, but it was a hill. But basically he's saying they have been brought low into a valley. And he says valley of vision because they don't have great vision, but they're actually spiritually blinded. So that's what's going on here. You are celebrating, as verse 1 says, you, you have your, you're on your housetops, you're full of shouting, you're an exultant town, but ruin comes upon you. And so the people of Jerusalem, ready to defend themselves and, and to live by their own power, they had built great walls to defend themselves. They had channeled water and reservoirs to be able to nourish the city that their water supply could not be cut off. But then as the end of verse 11 says, you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. This was the problem for the people of Jerusalem. I was in the middle of preparing for this sermon this week on Wednesday evening. I'm driving, I'm doing, I'm running errands and it strikes me that this is the attitude that so often pervades my own heart. And here's what I mean. Jerusalem, this city built on a hill, um, was, there are many ways in which it is geographically laid out where it needed the people to rely upon God to provide for them. And yet they had built these buttresses, these, these fortresses to their own strength, where maybe their hearts weren't as inclined to trust God, and yet they had, in their own ingenuity, had turned themselves to where they didn't need as much faith in God. 
And I was struck by how often in my own life I try to work in order to minimize risk, in order to minimize danger, in order to minimize possible things going awry to the point where I don't need to live in desperate faith in God. But the thing is that when life is going well, when myself and my loved ones are healthy, when the uh, stock market, when investment accounts, when all of those things are, are, are going up and not going down, when we're coming out of a pandemic and not going into a pandemic, it is easy to feel this sense of security, but it is, it, it is the danger in feeling as if the ground on which we are standing is sure when it is actually a moving walkway that is carrying us off the edge of the cliff. That is what God is saying to the people of Jerusalem. You feel yourselves so secure, but you don't realize it. In fact, if you were to go on, read in verses 12 uh, uh, through um, 12 and 13. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. And then here's the attitude the people had. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They had no awareness of this. In church, the danger that we face is to have no awareness of this. The danger we face is to be so insulated in our comforts that we fail to to have awareness of our great need for God. Financially, as a church, our giving is good. We have money in reserve for in case of a rainy day. We've been able to do work on our facility. We're able to do much. We, 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 we've, we've, we've haven't had any great pinches as a church. We haven't had any great tragedies. We haven't had any great hardships. And we praise God for those. Yet the danger that we face is a danger in which we are lulled to a sense of comfort to the point where we don't need to rely upon God in prayer and in, and in our lives consecrated before Him day by day, moment by moment. And here's how dangerous we face this in a day by day life thing individually. I carry in my wallet right now all the things that are going to protect me from a nightmare scenario. And you do too, very likely. I got the credit cards I can spend on in case of emergency. I got the health insurance in case something comes up, I'm going to be safe. You got the home insurance. I don't think I have a home insurance card in my wallet, but you get the idea. You got the home insurance. If something happens to your house, you will be able to rebuild. You, we, the, the entire insurance industry, it is a very good thing, but it is a very good thing uh, not only in providing for our safety and our security, but also in trying to lull us into a position where we feel as if we are not in danger. And Isaiah says to us, you might not be in danger over the walls of your building collapsing, over yourselves running out of water, but here's the danger. Your souls are in danger if you lull yourself to sleep and not being aware of your need for God. And so Wednesday night, I'm driving. I'm run, I'm, I've been working on my sermon during the day. Wednesday, I'm driving. I'm, doing, I'm running errands. And it strikes me. I'm thinking, oh, man, I can't wait till we go back outside for worship. And I'm struck by the fact, this fact, 
one reason why I think last summer in our outdoor worship was so just special was because for all the things that we did to make it happen, there was a very real sense that there was some stuff we just couldn't control. We can't control the rain. We can't control the weather. We had to live day by day, moment by moment, reliant upon God. I want to pastor a church where that is the attitude. Whether we're in a building where we don't have to worry about the weather or whether we're outside. And I pray that I would be a pastor, that that would be my own spirit. All of us want to drive in safety, want to veer towards the safe course and not, not walk along that ridge of desperate faith upon God where we live in a manner where He has to work or we are undone. This is what God calls His people to. Who in our lives are we sharing the hope of the faith with? And our attitude and our prayer is, God, if this one, if you don't work in this person's life, they are not going to believe. Do we have those in our lives? Do we trust the power of God to bring new birth to those that we would share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ with? Or are we more looking towards the ones that we can make the rational argument with, or the, the rational case with the ones who might seem to be an open door that they might seem to be a little easier towards belief not that there's one right way or one wrong way but may our hearts be inclined towards desperate faith in god now some of you who are a little older in life you can speak to those of us who are younger You've suffered catastrophic events in your life where you knew no matter what insurance cards you had in your back pocket, no matter the state of your bank account, no matter the state of anything else, you walked through trials and circumstances that left you undone and you did not know where to turn. Help us younger people to have that kind of faith, would you? For here's the danger. We don't go praying for tragedy to come upon us. This is not what I'm getting at at all. But we pray for hearts where we would not take that moving walkway off the edge of the cliff. That moving walkway that seems secure. We pray for hearts where our hearts would be tied up in desperate faith in God. And confidence in Him that He has got to be the one that's going to get me through today, this week, this month. Or I won't make it. Or look at the alternative. And this is one where younger people, where we need to see. In verses 15 through 25. I'm not going to read all of it for the sake of time. But we meet a guy named Shebna and another guy named Eliakim. Shebna, in fact, I will read some of it. In verse uh, 15 and 16, speaking of Shebna, the less says the Lord God of hosts, come go to this steward to Shebna. Who is over the household and say to him, what have you to do here and whom have you here? That you have cut out here a tomb for yourself. You who have cut out a tomb on the height and carved a dwelling place for yourself on the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurry, hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you. And, while, and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots and you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. So Shebna, pause here, Shebna is this guy who is all consumed with himself. 
He's literally, you see him there, trying to make arrangements for himself to be in power in this life and for himself to be secure in the next life. He's concerned with these elaborate burial uh, locations for himself and elaborate arrangements for his own life. And God says, you are so caught up with yourself, I'm going to wipe you out. Because he was poorly leading the people of Judah. And then we meet in verses uh, 19 through 20, or, or 19, or 20 through 25, excuse me, we meet Eliakim, who's another guy who leads better for his people. But I want you to see something down in verse uh, 23 and following. Speaking of Eliakim, it says, And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. He will become a throne of honor to his father's house, and they will hang on to him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Do you see what's happening here? Eliakim, this ruler over the people of Judah, he who even leaves, leave, uh, leads the people nobly, uh, honestly, humbly, sacrificially, he is like a peg that the whole people are clinging to for life, for survival. And they are hanging on to that peg. And I don't know if you've ever tried to do uh, rock climbing or, or mountain climbing where you're trying to hang on, but eventually you are hanging on uh, so strongly, so firmly that your, your muscles start to give way and you let go. And God says, that is Eliakim to you. You are trying to find Jerusalem. You are trying to find a leader that you can cling to for trust and for safety and security. And any man-made leader, any man before you cannot do it, you need me. Even to the point that in the book of Revelation, Jesus is quoted in, uh, these verses are quoted to describe Jesus. And so the picture here is, go back to that which you find your ultimate security in. I can't answer that for you. Best way to know what you find to be totally secure is what if what is the thing that you daydream about when you are awake? And what is the thing that you dream about when you are asleep? Whatever those things are, if they are taken away, what happens to you? And what God's word says to us here is that anything that that is apart from God, it will eventually be that peg that you are hanging on to that crumbles and you fall off the wall. But if it is God, if it is Jesus Christ himself, then in him you will be secure. For here's the wonder of Christianity, of the Christ that we follow. The wonder of, Christ, of, of the Christ that we follow is that He is the one who came as God in the flesh to us. And He is the one who lived that perfect life and who died the death on the cross in our place and who now reigns eternally and perfectly and completely uh, at the right hand of God the Father. And He is the one who nourishes and cares for and provides for His people, His church. He is the one who has beaten death itself Therefore, he is the one that we can hope for no matter what we face, even in the face of death. And this is where, once again, those older saints have so much to teach us younger people. Because even those older saints, as they take the last breath of this life, them who have hoped in Christ for whether it be months or for decades, They are anticipating entering into the presence of Christ. And they know that even though all in this life has wasted away to the point where they are about to no longer be able to breathe, they will enter into the presence of Christ 
where they will have new life and they will have hope in a resurrection. And so, what is it that you look to for safety and security that you don't know that you would be able to believe, that you don't know that you would be able to breathe without it? And when that thing is taken away, not if, but when, Christ must be the rock to which we cling. You might say, well, I don't know how I cling to that Christ. Look at Isaiah 23. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip over explaining a lot of it, but it's a concern. It's an oracle concerning Tyre, which was a nation. So think of Tyre. It was a vast economic power. It was a coastal city that had ships that sailed all throughout the Mediterranean and and was just just a, a place of, of, of great beauty, a place of great uh, wealth, a place of great allure, a place of great commercial success. And verse 1 says, Well, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. And now I'm going to skip down all the way to, chapter, uh, to verse 15. God has pronounced a judgment over Tarshish. You see it concluded in verse 14. And then verse 15. In that day Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years. Like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Previously Tyre was described as like a prostitute in the eyes of God. But hear this. Take a harp. Go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody. Sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself uh, with all the kingdoms of the world and on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Now you might say, hold on, what is happening here? Tyre, who had given herself to, to, to selling all of her goods before the world. God promises to redeem her. Where her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. God promises redemption for those who look upon Him. You might say, I don't know how I hang on to that peg, that rock of security. How do I hang on and let go of these other things that, I, that my life feels I need? How do I trust Christ even as my body wastes away, even as that relationship crumbles, even as that, 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 that job, that, that family situation, even as not it goes great, but even as it turns sour? How do I trust God? How do I trust Him with the rubble and the, the wreckage that I feel is my life? How do I trust God with all that I feel has fallen apart? I trust Him because He makes things new. And just as He promised He would do for Tyre, He does for all who are in Christ. In fact, 
Jesus Himself in the Gospels ministered in Tyre. And He met a woman who He shared with of a hope that was found in Him and she did not believe that it could possibly be true. And yet, this woman of Tyre found faith in Christ and found life in Him that was everlasting. My friend, are you looking to Christ or are you looking elsewhere for security, for life, for purpose, for meaning? If you are looking elsewhere, Isaiah 21 through 23 says it will crumble. The attitude of your life might be one where you feel you have success today. But your attitude is actually eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And yet, if you are looking to Christ, the attitude that we can have is eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. But now, we are alive in Christ. Would you look to Him? Would you renew your trust in Him? Would you renew your resolve to cling to Him? And would you let those little securities that we all have in life, would you entrust those to Him to the point where they don't become a means of dismissing God? but where He reigns over them fully and completely. Let's pray. God, we ask that You would help us to hear and to see the warning of Isaiah 21-23 through and to forsake those things that we believe we need to live in order that we might truly live in Christ. That we might be made new and made alive through Christ. It is in Him that we pray and it is in Him that we hope. I pray You help each of us to do this. Help each of us to have a posture in life of humble reliance upon You. Of humble submission under your rule over us. May this be the posture and the position and the cry of our hearts. For Christ reigns over his church, fully and freely, completely and true. And it is in him that we pray and hope. Amen.